Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, Tim Cronin, personal injury trial attorney at The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And I'm Tim Cronin. Tim, what's our topic today? Well, our topic, we were supposed to have a guest that we're working with on these cases and talk about neck cases, necrotizing enterocolitis cases, which are a series of cases we're working on with this other attorney where children develop this terrible disease and they're far more likely to get it if they get this particular cow's milk-based formula. Anyway, we will be doing that topic in the future, but... Our co-counsel in those cases texted me last night and said he just tested positive for COVID. So I told him not to come into our office. We'll give him a break. (laughs) We'll give him a break. (laughs) So we will be doing that in the future. So we're empty. We're empty. We're empty. Well, you know what? I got a title for this session, and I think an appropriate title would be Nothing in Particular. Yeah, that's a good title. So that's what we'll talk about. Nothing in particular. What should we talk about, guys? I think we should compete to see who can tell the funniest or most ridiculous story about something that happened to the war stories from trial. Well, Tim, more crazy shit has happened to you, I think, than any other lawyer I know. So I think you might have a head start. <laughs> it follows well, him. It's not all, always necessarily happened to me. Sometimes it's just some stupid stuff I did. For example... I have been working here with John for quite a while, since law school, actually. He was my trial ad teacher, and I've been here with him for over a dozen years now. And John had me helping try cases almost immediately. My first trial where I was lead counsel was a couple years into practicing. And this is your nephew, Kevin Carney, who works here, had just started here also. He'd been a defense firm for several years. He just started here, and it was his first trial ever. And my first trial as lead counsel. And I showed up for the second day of trial. It was the day where I was talking the whole day. Like Kevin had nothing to do that day. And I had like all the witnesses and and, and I was going to be up the whole day. And I showed up to trial and I parked my car in the parking garage. This was in St. Louis County. And Danielle, who worked for you for years, was out there as our paralegal at the trial. And I get out of the car and I open my back door where my suit jacket should be. And it was not there. And this is like we're supposed to start in 25 minutes and my house is uh, 45 minutes away from the courthouse. So we had a problem. Danielle gets on the phone, um, gets a hold of our office manager at the time who I think gets a hold of you. And there was a spare jacket in your trunk. I'm not very tall, by the way. So it's problematic to find something that fits me and manages to get I had black pants, a black jacket. But I don't think anybody paid attention very closely to the black jacket. So I get it. Somebody shows up. It's too baggy on me. I'm just about to stand up. I put the jacket on and it is a tuxedo jacket with lapels, (laughs) shiny lapels. (laughs) And I didn't have a choice. So I then spent the entire day standing and talking in front of the jury (laughs) with a tuxedo jacket with some tails and shiny lapels. And looked it, totally it had tails. <laughs> yeah, tails. it looked totally ridiculous. It was your son's 
tuxedo jacket from some wedding you'd been that at. He, that he didn't return. Yeah. That he, and that it he was, rented and didn't return it. It had been crumpled in your trunk. <laughs> so it also was crumpled. It sounds like Las Vegas. Maybe you should have just <laughs> sung your Or well, at least it was I, the second day, right? I think the, I, yeah, yeah. So the defense lawyers were like, I don't know what this guy's going to do next. <laughs> Maybe juggle. And we settled the case that day. <laughs> like in the middle of that afternoon, we settled the case that so what, day. So what's the jury? What are they doing? How are they looking at you? <laughs> With confusion, but also entertained. So did the, you explain the day went very well? I did. The judge let me explain briefly. I forgot my jacket. So somebody brought me this replacement jacket and it's a tuxedo jacket. Our clients in that case they, were pretty old. Like, we know that. And yeah, right after I put it on, my elderly client who was in a terrible accident, it was an uninsured motorist case, came up to me and said, Tim, I said, yes, ma'am. Do you know you're wearing a tuxedo jacket? Only the very yeah. best for you. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Yes, I do. Don't worry. It's going to play fine. But we ended up settling the case that yeah. day for all the yeah. money that we wanted. So it worked out. It That's was my a Jedi first story. mind trick. It, it, it set them <laughs> off balance and uh, prepared the way for things to come. Shortly after that, when Danielle was setting up, I don't know, some kind of accounts for me with organizations, she always made my password tuxedo number one. Tuxedo <laughs> number one. Great story. So I have a uh, jacket story as well. This is 20 years ago. Woke up to, it was zero degrees. It was like a blizzard outside. And I thought, I'm going to go to the office through the snow. And I wore one of those big puffy winter coats that makes you look like the Pillsbury Doughboy, or is it the Michelin Man or whatever, you know, big puffy coat. Yeah. And I'm sitting at my desk and I'm just minding my own business when I got a call from the opposing counsel who said, hey, I need to get this case off the docket. Would you be willing to show up at court? And I said, you know, all I got is this big puffy coat, so I don't have a suit. He says, don't worry, it's Judge Durker's court and he does everything in chambers these days. So <laughs> Judge Durker would have been like the number one judge I wouldn't want to show up in his courtroom without a suit. I'm waiting prompt- to hear how this turns out. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't prompt you to say that, Tim. No. But, but so, so I said, okay, I'll show up. So I show up and I couldn't believe it. It was like, you know, the full courtroom is like division one is the motion docket back then. There were probably 20, 30 attorneys there. Judge Durker, then comes out and the bailiff all rise and we're doing it out there. So they call our case and I think, okay, either wear the coat up to the bench or don't wear the coat, just have a shirt and tie. And I decided to wear the coat and I was going to explain, but before I could explain, Durker looks at me and says, counsel, this is a courtroom. This is a place where you should show respect for the court. And then it went on for like another two or three minutes. Where he didn't even let you explain? It felt like two or three years. And I was trying to explain about the blizzard. You know, I'm not even, didn't even know I was supposed to be here. I'm trying to help, you know, the opposing counsel. And uh, he did it well. Good lecture about respect for the court. Yeah. Maybe he was more of a tuxedo guy. (laughs) (laughs) I should have called him. He used to wear a bow tie, remember? Yeah. Right. On the bench, yeah. Right. So uh, footnote, 10 years, 15 years later, I was in chambers with him. And I was always wanting to see if you remember this. I said, Judge, remember about 15 years ago, I showed up in court. I thought he must have remembered because he looked rather irate, actually. Yeah. And he kind of laughed about it then. And he said, oh, that periodically happened. And that's why at some point I bought an extra jacket, maybe at Goodwill or something. I have an extra jacket here. And when this happens, I give that jacket to the attorneys who forget their jackets. One of the cases that I think back about fondly is one of the first cases that I tried as a plaintiff's attorney. It's a very young lawyer. 
I was at a different firm and the case came in, it was referred to me and it was an elderly gentleman, wonderful, wonderful, really nice guy. He was a retired engineer. He was probably 80 years old and he ordered one of those scooters. He had a problem with one of his legs and he ordered a three-wheeled scooter, one wheel in front, two in back, where you kind of can glide. Older people use them in the grocery stores and actually they do have them in the grocery stores with baskets on the front. He gets it delivered and it's delivered in his driveway. The driver comes out, gets it out, sets it up, shows him how to use it. And he gets on the scooter just as the delivery guy's driving away. He drives to the end of his driveway to where the sidewalk is, makes a left. He turns the steering to the left and it tips over on him and he breaks his arm. And he was a really fun guy. I mean, just he didn't take anything real seriously, including the case. But he was like, this is kind of dangerous if this can fall over. Older people are using it. He told me when I met with him that he laid on the sidewalk there for about 20 minutes, unable to get up with a broken arm, and cars would go by waving at him. <laughs> so I didn't know what kind of neighbors he had, but I kind of laughed at that. But so anyway, I brought that case in the office, and his only injury was he had a broken arm. And I was going to bring the case, you know, file a lawsuit saying that this was an inherently defective and dangerous product because if you make a turn, you can tip over and this could happen. Old people use this. It shouldn't happen. And I talked to two or three of the attorneys I worked for at the time, talked to me, and everyone said the same thing. Do not take that case. Do yeah. not take that case. It was still my decision whether or not to take it. But everybody there said, it's a product case. It's ridiculous. It's just He's got a broken arm. He's got a cast. He's okay now. I just, I didn't listen to any of them. I said, okay, no, I'm going to go ahead and at least try to get it settled. And I thought if it doesn't settle, I won't file it. That was the compromise. So I went and wrote a demand. I don't know. I demanded like something like seven or $8,000 or 12,000 bucks or whatever it was, sent the demand letter and put my analysis and my best arguments and the medical records and the bills. And I even had an x-ray of my client's arm and I sent it to a very fine experienced, good defense lawyer who, you know, I've known for years, wonderful guy. So about a week later, this was the day way before computers and email, I put it in the mail and a week or so later, I get back my same letter, my same demand letter and red marker across the top, it said, no pay. <laughs> that was it. So, well, my whole idea of compromise went out the window at that point. I thought, I'll be damned if I'm not going to try this case now. This is ridiculous, okay? Everybody's telling me, forget about it. Don't do it. But had he just said we're unable to pay, and he sent me a letter, a phone call, wouldn't have filed the case. But I just, that no pay kind of stuck with me. I didn't like the no pay. So what I did is I filed a lawsuit, and I did some research and figured out I could present the case without an expert. My guy was an engineer. He bought the product. I wasn't really going to use him as an expert, but... What I did is I took one deposition and it was the salesperson. And I took that person's deposition. I think I called him at trial. I don't even think I took their deposition. I subpoenaed them. That was it. That was my idea. I was going to subpoena the salesperson and on the stand elicit enough information from him to make my submissible product liability case. And by the way, my client's fine. You know, he was doing <laughs> fine. Nothing wrong with him. Not hurt. So we're in St. Louis County, which is a very conservative venue at that time. I called the my only witness other than my client to the stand. I had subpoenaed the salesperson from the company that sold it. And my client, Mr. Williams, had a bad leg and he was in a wheelchair. It had nothing to do with the case, but he was in a wheelchair. And so he's sitting at the counsel table and he's rolling like this back and forth, you know, kind of watching, smiling at the jury in his wheelchair. And I go to do one of my first cross-examinations at trial and I had my outline all prepared. I worked on it for days. 
And I made all of my points. It was probably a 30 or 45 minute cross-examination of this salesperson all about, you know, you sell these to elderly people and they shouldn't tip over and people can get hurt and you know that and it's unstable and it's unbalanced and all of this. And I thought I did a hell of a job. I gave myself an A plus. I get done with that cross-examination. I turn around and I walk back to the council table and there's Mr. Williams sitting in his wheelchair, rolling back and forth. And he says loud enough for everybody in the courtroom to hear. So John, if we lose this damn thing, I don't pay anything. Is that right? I <laughs> know. <laughs> yeah, I don't owe you anything. And of course, I said loud enough so everybody could hear. No, Mr. Williams, that's correct. <laughs> so the jury, a couple of them were laughing. Some of them were smiling. The long and the short of it was the jury was out for about 15 minutes and they came back and they gave my client $3,400, $3,400. Mr. Williams was happy. The jury came back deciding that this product was defective and unreasonably dangerous and got a whopping award of $3,400. So that's a story of one of my first product liability case. Did you annotate that letter, that no pay letter and send it back to say pay? No. And as a matter of fact, the lawyer who tried it against me was a wonderful attorney. We got along great. He was about six rungs down from the guy who wrote no pay on the letter at the firm. They were happy to pay the $3,400. So all's wells and ends well, I guess. You had another case though, right? Where you got a very, very tough case. Didn't think you could win one low judgment amount. The defense lawyer appealed it. And the appellate panel said, sir, didn't you already yeah, win it was, this case? It was a med mal case. And it was the same kind of thing. It was, I was a young lawyer. There was a liability was very clear. Yeah. What they did was wrong. My client almost died, but was fine. I think she had about $15,000 in medical bills. And again, against others' better judgment, I decided what's wrong is wrong, and I'm going to go ahead and try this case. And yeah. I ended up trying it in the city of St. Louis. It was a three or four day trial. And again, that was a case I sent a demand out, I think, for fifteen dollars or $20,000. And it's just the kind of thing that we know now that, you know, it's a med mal case. They're not going to pay. They're going to try the you. case. Yeah. And so we tried it, and the, that jury was out literally for 20 minutes. I asked for $75,000. They awarded $75,000. Eventually, they appealed it. Yeah, filed a motion for a new trial. Did the lawyer call you and say you want to negotiate? Yeah, negotiate you said, a I settlement. think this one's right yeah. for appeal. Yeah. <laughs> That's what he did. He called and right said for the appellate court. Right. He wanted us to come down off of our judgment and settle the case. And me, being stubborn at the time, said, "You know, I think this one has appeal written all over it," <laughs> thinking that they wouldn't appeal it. And you of course, they did. And we go to oral <laughs> argument on a seventy-five thousand dollar medical malpractice judgment. We're in front of the panel. Of course, I'm sitting there. They appealed it, so I'm going second. Immediately, the defense attorneys arguing this vigorously was about my expert or something, one thing or another, who knows. And one of the judges on the panel said, uh, stop, just hold on a second. What was the verdict? $75,000. Didn't your client already win this case? <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. anyway, that was another one. The next story I'm going to tell is the trial I had right before my tuxedo story. I really had a run. And then the one I'll tell later is the one right after it. This was a case I tried with Rachel Roman, who was working here at the time. She was lead counsel on the trial. I was second chairing her. Our client's name was Mr. Smith. He was working at like a bird seed company and working with some machine where something fell on his hand and completely crushed his hand. One of the main problems with the case was our client was a three-time convicted armed robbery felon, which was coming into trial. But the liability was good in the case. Anyway, I don't remember which parts of the case I did, which parts of the case Rachel did. I definitely put the client on. But about halfway through the trial, Rachel is up presenting something. 
I don't think it was opening. I think it was like she was putting on our expert or was crossing someone of theirs. And we're the closest to the jury box. And the guy who is the closest to me when I'm sitting at the table is right by the like opening to get into the jury box. He's at that corner, that front left corner. And while Rachel's doing her presentation, I can see this guy start to like kind of sway kind of like something's wrong with this guy. He's going to pass out. And lo and behold, Rachel's walking back to the council table and this juror just completely passes out, falls out of the jury box, face first, like right in front of Rachel. And Rachel- like over the top of the jury box? No, he, so not over the front rail. He just happened to be in the front left seat, which is where the opening is. Okay. And he just fell right out of it, like right in front of Rachel's feet. Well, as you know, Rachel was an ER nurse before she became a lawyer. And- Rachel starts reviving this juror, at which point I announced to the room, don't worry, everybody. She used to be an ER nurse. The whole sequence of events like kind of taints the jury probably. Yeah. Rachel revives the guy. We have a break. Opposing counsel obviously makes a motion for mistrial. <laughs> that was denied because we were halfway through the trial. They excused the juror. She revived and got in a replacement. And we ended up getting a nice verdict in that case with punitive damages. And then it got resolved on appeal as they were appealing the denial of the mistrial. mistrial. Which was yeah. a pretty legitimate issue, yeah. I think. There's another one that I remember. This was, gosh, this had to be 30 years ago or so. And I was trying a case in the city of St. Louis, and it was a serious injury case. I had a young guy. He was a tire repair guy. He got a head injury. He broke his arm, shoulder, broken bones, but he also had a closed head injury. And he had been to so many doctors. I got the case referred to me several years after the incident itself. And this guy had gone to so many doctors, and it wasn't really being disputed heavily, the injuries. I mean, the injuries were what they were. And Randy was my client's name good guy, kind of a simple, really good guy, easy to get along with, friendly. And so what we did is we sent him to a neurologist here in town to be evaluated for the head injury. It was an IME is what it was. And so I thought that we could do that and avoid having to go take half a dozen treating doctor's depositions, some of whom hadn't seen him in two or three years. And so uh, I have the neurologist on the stand you know, Randy is sitting back, not at the council table, but back in the pew with my paralegal. And I'm about halfway through the direct examination of our IME neurologist. And all of a sudden, the jury's looking in the back of the courtroom, and it's my client, Randy, quickly, like abruptly getting up out of his seat and sort of walking really fast out of the courtroom. And the door slams behind him. Everything's quiet. And the jurors, everybody's wondering what happened. So anyway, I didn't know what happened, and we get done with the direct examination and the cross, and we take a break, and he's still out in the hallway, Randy. And I went out there and said, Randy, what happened? Why did you storm out when the doctor's on the stand? And he looked at me and said, I didn't know I was hurt that bad. <laughs> <laughs> so again, you know, and, and I give him credit. I mean, he'd had a, he had a head injury, right? And yeah. this guy was talking about prognosis and all the other stuff. But we ended up getting a nice verdict in that case for Randy. And he's a wonderful guy. I'm going to uh, guess that the defendants had a doctor who also didn't think he was hurt that bad. <laughs> yes. Yeah, they did. That was. But uh, anyway. Small cases seem to have as many issues as bigger cases. The budget doesn't justify taking 18 depositions in a tiny case. So it's, I often find it frustrating. That was just an aside. I have like crazier stuff seems to happen in the smaller cases just to rub it in that I shouldn't have taken the case. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah. May Did Kevin ever tell you his Nunya story? This is a very short one. I'll do two in a row. 
So I think this was the elevator case that Kevin had. There was previous lawyers that were handling this case. Our client had a brain injury. I don't know all the details of the case, but it was about like the elevator closing on him, whether it should have had a light curtain, whatever. And our client had been previously deposed and he was getting deposed again because there was like a new set of lawyers on the other side too. And I think defense counsel turns to Kevin's client and starts asking him details about whether he is in any current romantic relationships. And the client indicates yes. And the defense lawyer says, well, what's her name? And the client responds, Nunya. And the defense lawyer doesn't understand and turns to Kevin and goes, is that like a first name or a last name? At which point our client yells out, business? Because... The answer was, it's none of your business. And at that point, the room was quiet for about 30 seconds while defense counsel collected himself and Kevin tried not to laugh uproariously. They may have taken a break shortly after that. <laughs> the case right after the tuxedo case, it really was a string of just gems, was an arbitration up in Chicago that Kevin and I Oh, did. I know this case. You know yeah, this case. I know this case. And I mean, we can talk unusual. about this case for a unusual. week. Yeah. But it was very unusual. Our client had a Chinese business partner for products like Bath and Body Works types products. And they had a line that they had come out with. And their relationship had disintegrated, I should say, to say the least. But there was breach of contract cases. There was like allegations against each of them that they had each stolen all the money from the business or intentionally tanked the business. There was intellectual property claims leading eventually to tort claims where our client went to China to try to work it out and was then kidnapped on a roof and kept there for three days, eventually gets released. And that was what the case was about, like their business relationship ultimately leading to a dramatic disintegration in that business relationship. And there's an arbitration clause. I mean, we, you can't sue a Chinese national in the United States. There's no personal jurisdiction for any of those claims. So we brought an arbitration for the contract and intellectual property claims and then tied in the tort claims because our client claimed that his business partner made him sign a new contract at the conclusion of torturing him for three days. And we were able to keep those in. We ended up getting a nice result, but our client was not controllable. And I had to put our whole case on through him. So for a whole day, I have him on the stand in this arbitration. I mean, we got the story out. I thought it was told pretty well, but our client had made pretty clear to me the two days prior to that when I was preparing him that he had some surprises for me. And Kevin and I kept pleading with him, like, please, no, no surprises. No. Tell me what you're we don't talking like about. But he didn't. And so one of his stories from being tortured for three days on the roof was that his business partner had had his thugs like hit him with his own belt. And at one point in the story, while I'm questioning our own client, he stands up, whips off his belt and starts swinging it in the air and yelling, this is the belt that he beat me with. <laughs> at another point, when defense counsel is cross-examining him, our client felt like he really like walked the other guy into some position that was bad for him. And he stood up and pointed at the other lawyer and yelled, you just walked into your own trap. And there's like five other examples of this that happened during that day. And yet we won the arbitration and got a $4.3 million arbitration award, which is almost impossible to collect in China. But that's not important. We got a good story out of it. And that was the case sure. I tried right after the tuxedo Is that case. your only civil case involving kidnapping? Uh, I think so. 
<laughs> I think it is. I deal with arbitration quite a bit. Part of my practice involves helping people get out of timeshare contracts. And it's interesting that in these contracts that were written typically seven, eight years ago, if you want to contest the fairness of the process, you have to go to arbitration. And it's pre-dispute binding mandatory arbitration. And my first few cases, I found out the cost of this is incredible. For someone who has a $10,000, $20,000, maybe $30,000 claim, it might be several thousand dollars of filing fees and you have to pay $400 an hour for the arbitrator and they have provisions where you have to split that fee. So it discourages people from wanting to bring these claims. But what I figured out is that the main arbitrating associations have now they ignore that and they say it's a $300 flat fee for arbitrating and the business pays everything else, everything else. So now it's, you know, it flipped the whole dynamic of, is it worth it to bring these cases? And now you hear these timeshare operators whining and bitching about how unfair the process is. Is this the document say that they only have to pay 300 or is it just something arbitration companies? It's does? the arbitration organizations have now. You know why that this. is? I'm thinking it's because they know that the side who's making the claim probably can't afford it. So the defendant goes along with that? or A couple of times, no, and they resist it. But I think that there's some cases that have been throwing the arbitration cause out if you try to impose that, because that would be, you know, four or $5,000 fee potentially mm -hmm. to bring a case that's worth 10 or 20. So anyway, I represent consumers against timeshare operators who won't call themselves typically timeshare operators. They don't like to use that phrase because it just stinks up the room. My favorite moment of a lot of these cases is you have a corporate rep depot of the timeshare operator. And John, you've seen a tape where I've did this before and I do it every time. It just, it never fails to make me laugh. You ask one of these people to read a paragraph of their own contract because it's in about six or eight point type. You know, it's not meant to be read and they always mess it up. The last one I did, I said, could you read this sentence? Well, the sentence was 400 words long and the uh, corporate rep was trying to read it, skipped lines, missed words, and I, I counted seven errors in the one sentence. That's just to set the tone for the, the obvious unfairness of the situation. But yeah. that's something that I do, and I look forward to that question. They know it's coming, and sometimes it's been the same person several times, and I'm just asking, could you read the sentence, and they can't. It reminds me of a lot of these stories are when we're young, but one of the stories that I'm thinking about was one of the first depositions I had taken, and it was in an auto case. We represented a woman who was a backseat passenger in a taxi cab, taxi cabs at a stop sign, and a car comes from the driver's left, in other words, toward the driver's side of the cab driver. The cab driver had to stop. The other car had to right away. Cab driver pulls out in front of an oncoming car and gets hit in the side on the driver's side. And this woman was pretty seriously injured. And so one of the partners that I worked for, it was his case. Actually, it was George Fitzsimmons, great guy, a good mentor for me for 20 years. And George gives me the case and says, here, go take this deposition. You're taking the deposition of the cab driver. He was the defendant in the case, the individual driver. And it was one of the first depositions I took at the new firm. And I was trying to impress my boss. So I overprepared for it and was so thorough. It was a deposition that probably could have been taken in 30, 45 minutes very effectively. And I spent two hours on it or three hours questioning this poor driver about everything under the sun. And so finally, I asked him questions like, do you have prescription glasses? When is the last time you've been to the eye doctor? All these kinds of questions. And so the deposition's over. And the one thing, we found out this out before the case went to trial and the case ended up getting settled. The thing that I missed was the cab driver was blind in his left eye. <laughs> and so I went back 
the defense lawyer knew had a good relationship with George and disclosed that. Yeah. So the biggest, most important piece of evidence in the entire case, I failed to get <laughs> in a deposition. Your question and, was too right, specific. And, exactly. And so the cab driver, the defendant, was prepared and ready to tell me, right? He wanted to tell me that. And uh, I read the deposition and I just bounced all over the place with very specific questions, not letting them talk. And so that was the result of one of my first attempts to impress my boss and, and with my uh, trial skills, with my you know, litigation skills. You know, there's a general principle here and I teach, I know you teach John also, and there's nothing like those things that don't go right to burn that memory in. You carry that stuff all your life. Well, the Eric, I'll things, tell you the follow-up to that is, my questions after that in all cases were, are you blind? <laughs> you know, are you blind in either eye, like top of the list on the questions? Well, hopefully we've kept our audience entertained and we don't want to spoil and use up all of our stories. we got to save some for future episodes. So we hope you have enjoyed another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Tim Cronin. I'm John Simon. I'm Eric Veith. See you next time. The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your thoughts with John, Tim, and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want a lively look at life and law from a female attorney's point of view, check out our Heels in the Courtroom podcast. Subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.